So now hear God's word, John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as loved them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of our Lord. You know, the church has always taken Jesus' prayer for unity extremely serious. That they have never been a time in church history from the earliest days that the church did not strive to preserve the unity that Jesus prayed for. In Acts chapter 6, you see right off the bat, there there was a disputation between the Greek-speaking Jewish women, the Hellenist Jews, and the Hebrew-speaking Jewish women over the administration of the uh, charitable giving to the church to meet their needs. And so the church immediately addressed it. They appointed deacons and, and to keep the peace because there was, what, a disputation. In Acts chapter 15, the church in Jerusalem called the Presbytery in Jerusalem called a council to discuss how they were going to include the Gentiles into the church because this was a big problem. This, the church was originally all Jews and now the Gentiles were starting to believe, what do we do? How do we include them? How do we, do we ask them to be circumcised, keep the law of Moses? What do we need to do? Paul wrote almost every one of his letters includes some warning about division and disputations. In in the Galatian church, he wrote them a letter that was condemning the Judaizers who were saying you have to keep the law, you have to be circumcised. And in Colossians, he warned them, you don't have to keep the dietary laws. It doesn't matter what you eat or drink. It's about your your giving your life to Jesus. So it it was this constant threat of division that the enemy came and sowed among the people in the church. Even John himself, when he wrote his three little books at the end of your Bible and the book of Revelation, were addressing problems of spiritual disunity and the church being under threat from outside forces and from within. Later on in church history, you have what is called the seven major ecumenical councils. And you all have heard of these, I'm sure. If you haven't, you can look it up online. 
325, there was the Council of Nicaea, from which we got our Nicene Creed. Now, the the problem with Nicaea, or at Nicaea, one of them that they were addressing was the nature of Jesus, who he was. And so there was a disputation. I won't get into all of the details, but it was over a, a, a Greek word, homoousios, and another Greek word, homoousios. And the only difference was the iota. This is where we get the, the uh, phrase uh, not one, there's not an iota of difference. There was one letter of difference between these two words, and the words meant same substance or similar substance. And the church was arguing about, is Jesus the same substance of God? Was he truly God? Or was he simply the Son of God, which everyone believed, but was he created? Was he a different substance than God or a similar substance? And the church ruled that he was homoousios, he was the same substance. And we get from that the creed. Then there was Constantinople in 381, and in Constantinople they disputed uh, two heresies concerning, again, the nature of Christ, Apollinarism and Sabellianism. You can look these up online, but they had to do with who Jesus was, his nature. Then in 431, there was the Council of Ephesus. And at Ephesus, they addressed the Pelagian controversy. And this had to do not only with the nature of Christ, but how are you saved? How do you, how do you come into God's uh, good graces? And St. Augustine was one of the debaters, and uh, Pelagius, of course, and it was all resolved there. Uh, sadly, not completely. They also addressed Nestorianism. And then in 451, they had another great council uh, talking about the nature of the God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the church developed what has become one of the greatest statements ever written in any language called the Chalcedon or the Chalcedonian definition or formula. And I would urge you to, uh, uh, to look that up. I used to have it memorized, but I'm uh, too old now, so I'm not going to try it. But it's worth your time to look it up on the internet and read it. They had three other councils, all of them dealing with pretty much the same things and, and more. But you slowly start to see the church drifting away and unity starting to break. In 1054, they had the great schism of East and West. And if you read the reasons for why they split, it was... Uh, uh, it was a theological issue about the procession of the Holy Spirit. The Western Church wanted to add a phrase to the Nicene Creed. The Eastern Church uh, uh, objected. And uh, the church split over this phrase uh, from, and from the Father and the Son, the, what's called the filioque. Many of you may have heard of this. Now, if you read history and you look behind the scenes of something like the Great Schism, the Filioque, there was a lot more going on than that theological issue. Lots and lots of other issues that had nothing to do with the glory of Christ or who he was or what he did. And so the church started slipping away and away and away from this to the point now where ecumenism, what is called ecumenism, or this striving for unity between denominations and even between different faiths, interfaith ecumenism, is what they do is 
the, the parties that are talking about we all got to get along. So what they do is they lower the bar, lower and lower and lower to, to the, the lowest common denominator. So all you have to do is have some sort of belief, any belief in almost anything. As long as you're sincere, that's good enough. But the, the definition that Jesus gave us for oneness or ecumenism or unity is, as I read from, from Dr. Raymond Brown last week in his commentary, he said it's not a human contrivance. It's not something that we are supposed to do. It's something that Jesus already did. And that we've got to find that unity in Him, who He is, what He did, and in His glory, this overarching word that talks about the magnificence of His person and His work. That when you come to God, you can't even begin to know who God is without understanding the Son, the person of Jesus. Otherwise, God is just an abstraction. And you can't, you can't understand the Son without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who quietly, behind the scenes, with no attention to Himself, points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the two final petitions that we see, look at them in verse 21 and verse 24. These are two petitions that He gives at the end of His prayer. One is that they may be one as we are one, And then in verse 24, he asks a second petition. I pray that they may be with me where I am and see my glory. That I'm going to talk about next week. But I already did quite a bit of this last week about the unity and oneness of the church. But there's a few things that I need to point out to you very quickly uh, this morning. So we're going to look, first of all, at the unity that Jesus is talking about in relationship to, to, to the Father uh, and the Son. Look at verse 21, the, the, the very beginning. I pray that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me, I in you, they in us. Now, this is very important. Jesus is, is saying we are intertwined. You can't have the Father without the Son. He said this throughout the Gospel of John. And in fact, this morning I'm not going to quote any scriptures from anywhere else in your Bible, just from John. John insisted from the very beginning, verse 1 of chapter 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing was made without Him. And then in verse 14, it says, in Him was all the glory of God, He made His tabernacle with us. He lived with us. We saw His glory. Now that that would have shaken up any Jewish person that heard because God shared His his glory with no human being. None in any way, shape, or form. So what John was saying is Jesus is no less than God Himself and Jesus is the tabernacle or the, the temple, the physical place where God Himself abides with all His glory. And this is the dividing point, as I told you folks, in, in every week since. We can all talk, in our whole culture, we can talk across the board about God in the abstract. He, she, 
it, them, whatever it is. And make it. Pick your poison. It can be a tree. It could be the sun, moon, and stars. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, we can all talk about God in the abstract. We can even talk about Jesus to some extent as long as you say he's a good man, he's a prophet, he was a good teacher, he had some good things to say, or like Oprah Winfrey, he was a really cool dude. But that's not what the Bible says about him. That's not what he said about himself. He drew the proverbial line in the sand. If nowhere else, folks, in the Gospel of John, it's written right there. You can't get around it. You can't spin it. He's either God Almighty come in the flesh to save men and women from their sins on dying on a cross and His blood to make atonement, or He's nothing but just another teacher. He's not the way, He's just a way. But the church has always said He's the way, the life, and the truth. Look at 22b, the second part of the same little section here. That they may be one as we are one. 23b, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. He's talking about an inner connectivity between God the Father, God the Son, and you and I. That we, like, like a marvelous tapestry, for some reason, he has, well, I believe it's because we were created in the image of God, and this goes back to, go back and listen to the Genesis series that we did some years ago. This, this goes back to our very nature. We were created to reflect God in this world. And when we broke that, we didn't lose that image, but it was distorted. And God spent the whole Bible, in fact, I've told you before, everything from Genesis 3 on has to do with that very thing. How is he going to restore the image of God in man so that we can perfectly, what he says here in verse 23, be one with him. This is not a human contrivance. It's not all us getting all in one denomination or all of us having the same whatever uh, creeds or confessions, whether they're Protestant or Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. It is all of us in our particular places, wherever God has placed us, all focusing on a common horizon, the glory of our Savior. And throughout history, Jesus' prayer was answered. Because there have always been people throughout the denominational differences, and some of the differences we have are significant, but there have always been people across the board who have focused on the glory of Jesus. And my challenge to you and to myself and to this church, Christ the King, in an age when hatred and vitriol is poisoning the church here in the United States, that we rise to this challenge and say, no, we are going to honor the prayer of our Lord Jesus at our own expense. Whatever beliefs I need to toss away that are coming from the secular world, whether they be sinful beliefs or whether they be really good, what we think might be virtuous beliefs, that we're going to cast them off and let the Scripture be our guide. Let the truth of who Jesus is and what He came to do and His magnificent glory. Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? 
Okay, you Presbyterians, let's hear it. What is the chief end of man? Go ahead. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Number one of the shorter catechism. This is how important it is, folks. And if we don't live up to this, then we can't claim to be a good witness. Jesus said in this prayer that they may see and believe. He wants the world to see us sacrificing for one another and giving our life for one another. Is it going to be easy? No. It's going to be costly. You're going to suffer. Now there's a church down the street you can go to and they'll tell you, you know, suffering's from the devil and you don't have to suffer and you can be healthy and wealthy and have everything now in this life and that's fine. If that's what you want, then I would suggest you go find a place like that where they tell you these things and give your heart to it. It's okay. But Jesus didn't promise us a rose garden. He promised us something so much more, so much, so grand, so glorious that eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love Him. But He has revealed them to us. It's not hidden from us. We know. We see Him. We gaze upon His face. We know who He is. And that's what unifies, that's what holds us together, this man, and nothing else. So that's the unity that he's striving to get across in relationship. The verse 21, 22, 23, he, he just hammers away at it in his prayer. The second part is unity in love. And he defines love in this prayer, but also throughout John and in other places, of course, which I'm not going to get into. Most of you know 1 Corinthians 13. You probably heard it read at a million weddings. Um, and, and what I always want to say when they read it at a wedding is, I want to tell the couple, good luck with that. Now, I'm being cynical because I'm an old, you know, an old guy. And I, but anyway, Jesus defines love a certain way. So let's, let's follow what he said. Love is. Look at verse 23, 24, and 26. 23c, the last part. You love them even as you loved me. Now, if, folks, I hope every one of you, in fact, let's all agree that we're going to go get a tattoo. I've been wanting to get a tattoo. Uh, my, my older son is got tattoos all over. He's got whole sleeves on his arms. And uh, so he wants me to get a tattoo, and I think I'm going to get one um, that says this. God loved me, God loves me, the same way he loves Jesus. Let that sink in for a minute. Who in this room believes that? I don't even believe it. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around What? You love me the way you love your son? How can that be? And there's only one way that that can be. And that is if you get over yourself and you start looking at him and you see that he loved you 
before the foundation of the world. Look at 24C. He loved, he, Jesus says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. What he's saying is you also loved them before the foundation of the world. If you love me, love them the way you love me, then you love them before the foundation of the world. And there are other scriptures that say that. Before you were ever created, he put his hand on you. He breathed his life into you. That's why we baptize our babies. Is we bring them up here and we pour water on them, not to dedicate them to God, but to say to that child and his parents and everyone witnessing that God is promising something to them. Not us promising anything to Him. Oh, I'm going to give you my life. Jesus now baptized me. Well, that's great until you mess up. Then you've got to go get baptized again. But in this scheme, in this idea that we believe is entirely biblical, God comes to us and to our children and says, They're mine. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? They belong to me. And then you latch on to that with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you don't let it go for anything. They're mine, Jesus says. I love them before the foundation of the Lord. Look, 26c. The love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. Now here's the challenge, folks. This kind of love is costly. The Father's love for us was costly. It was sacrificial. John said he gave his only son so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It was lavish. As Tim Keller wrote a whole book called Prodigal God. The prodigal, those of you know, that means extravagant. Unsparing. Wasteful even. It's a waste. Why would he sacrifice that? On people like us. Now I don't know about you. Maybe y'all are virtuous. I kind of think you're not, but... I know myself. I know that I have nothing to uh, hold out in my hand. I have nothing in my hand. I bring simply to thy cross. I claim. I, I don't know. When I get to heaven, I know what God's going to see. A mess. I know my sin. And thousands more, as the old hymn says. Jesus knows of none. He bore them for us. The son's love was also costly. Listen, sacrificial, lavish, but it was also obedient. It was an obedient love. It was in a love that says to all of us, I will go to the extreme lengths of love and obedience for the Father, for you, as you, representing you, not so that you won't have to love God and be obedient to Him in return, not so that you won't have to, that's antinomianism, but so that you can. 
I will give you a new heart, a new spirit. I'll take the heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh so that you want to obey. And when you don't obey and when you're naughty and you, you do bad things, you run to Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind. You run to Him. You grab onto His legs. You don't offer up anything and you say, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I have sinned. I can't even approach you, but here I am. And He will sweep you up in His arms every single time without fail because He never fails. The love is based on Him, not on you. Not on your sincerity, not on your nothing. Just all Him. That's the unity of love that He's pleading with us to cling to. Listen to these verses. These are all from John. I hope, I hope this just... Let the Word of God stab you to death like, like Randy Pope says in, in The Journey. It is it the, the Bible will put you to death, a good death, so that you can be born anew. The Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He is doing. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the One who sent me, not my will. And this was not easy, folks. If you think it was easy, then you just need to read a little bit more of what John says. Listen, this is from John's three letters. I just took a compilation from his three little letters that he wrote at the end of, end of the apostolic age. Listen. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it's an old one. You have had from the very beginning this old commandment. Old being, Jesus said this. To, and, the, and the Old Testament says it. To love one another is the same message you heard before. Yet it is also new. Now listen. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment. He lived the truth of that commandment. We don't live the truth of that. We, we, we try. And I hope you're trying. And if you're not trying, then try harder. Whoever thought Chuck would give you some Nike theology? Never. Come on. Love him back with whatever you can. He did the perfect so that you could at least make the attempt. We love each other. Listen to what he says. Let these words get your heart. We love each other because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people that we can see, how can we love God who we cannot see? And John's ruthless. The, wow. And he has given us this command. Listen. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. We're witnessing a time, uh, perhaps we'd have to go back to the Civil War, to find a time when the American church has been so divided. And what's dividing us? Politics and culture, and masks, and vaccines, 
You name it, we'll find anything. I'm not making any comment about any of those things. I'm just asking you to look around and find out what are we arguing about and why? What is shredding us apart? Is it the glory of Jesus? Is it His love for His people? Or is it a border wall or not? What is tearing us apart? God help His church in this country. And if we don't repent and believe the gospel, judgment is going to come on His church. Forget what judgment on Afghanistan or judgment on Germany or England or even the United States. Judgment will come on His church because we are in His face saying we will not love our brothers. How dare we do that? Now, I, I have the microphone, so listen to me. We love because He first loved us. The command is not based on how well you can love. The command is based on how well He loved you. And let that sink in. How well did He really love you? You know, every one of you knows your dark secrets. You know what we do in the dark. We know the contempt that we hold other people. And we feed it to ourselves. We get at that trough like pigs and we eat it up. And you know that I'm speaking the truth to you. And I'm only saying that because I really care and I'm sorry that the church from from Genesis chapter 3 till now We as human beings have always liked to say, I'm smart enough to decide what is right for me, what is good for me, so I'll eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil if I want to. And so now, anybody can come along and say just about anything, and Christians are susceptible. But I'll tell you what, we have four elders and a pastor and an associate pastor who have been charged by Almighty God to protect the sheep and feed you with good green pastures. And that's what we're going to do. And so I'm challenging you to the unity of love that Jesus gave us. And finally, this may be the most important part, but I, I think they're all interwoven. And that's the unity that we find that is a mediated unity. And what I mean by that, you know, there's a story in, in Exodus, and when I, I preached this uh, some years ago, <laughs> I, 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 I tried to express the humor that Moses probably had when he was writing it, because he was going up and down Mount Sinai, and it, he'd come down the mountain, God would tell him stuff, he'd come down the mountain, and he'd tell the people, and there would be all these arguments where they'd build a golden calf or they'd do some crazy thing, and then he'd go back up the mountain, then he'd come back down the mountain, then back up the mountain, and so I entitled my my sermon on that particular passage, No Mediator, No Me. No Mediator, No Me, because Moses was up and down the mountain, I don't know how many times, And the point is that God is saying something even in that simple illustration of up and down the mountain, Moses up and down. Because without a mediator, how will you stand before God? How will you bring your golden calves, for goodness sakes? 
How will you take them and go, hey, look at this, God, <laughs> look what I made. I mean, are we crazy? No. No mediator, no me. Look at verse 25 and 26. Oh, righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Do you see that? The world doesn't know you, I know you, and these know that, I, that you sent me. There's no direct contact between you and God. You can dream it up if you want to, but at least have the integrity to say, when I, I want God to be this or that or the other thing, or I think God is like this or that, at least have the moral integrity to say, when I do that, He's just me. He's a projection of me, a figment, a fig newton, whatever you want to call it, of my imagination, of my own creating. I know you. These know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. That's the only way we're going to get it, folks, is to find it in Jesus Christ. Give our lives to him wholly and completely, not only in obedience, but in repentance and faith all of our life, going to him with everything, our mess, our good works, our bad whatever, running to our Savior. He told them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you know where I'm going. Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. He was kind of a smart aleck. We don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. Jesus said, yes, you do. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. And you know, People just scream at that. They say, look at how exclusive Christianity is. It's so exclusive and so intolerant and so unloving. Well, you're just, folks, I don't care who's reading this. You have to just read it with blinders on not to see that this is the most loving, lavish, sacrificial truth that any human being has ever spoken to the human race. Here's how you get to God. Through me, my body, my blood, I'll give it all for you. Just trust me. And we want to get all upset. Oh, he's so exclusive. He's being so exclusive. Can't I have my own golden calf? Can't I have my own idols? Come on, Jesus. And I want to ask you a question before we close. What have those idols ever done for you? The beauty, the money, the, the reputation, the, 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 the whatever, family heritage, uh, your nationality, your political party, whatever it is. Tell me what those idols have ever done for us. I've been rich and I've been poor. I've been healthy and I've been sick. And I can tell you, I've had a business, I've had all these. The idols have never done anything for me. They've never given me anything except chains. That's all. The only God I have ever seen in my 66 years of life, the only one that I've ever encountered who said, me for you, is this man. For I have come down. Listen to his word. These are just words from John. For I've come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me, not to do my own will. I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd sacrifices his life for his sheep. Father loves me because I sacrifice my life so that I can take it up again. I will do what the Father requires of me so the world may know that I love the Father. Folks, everybody in this room is going to die at some point. And someday you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, why should I let you into my heaven? The old evangelism explosion question. Why should I let you into my heaven? And some of people are going to say, well, you know, I was sincere. I tried this. I was good. I didn't commit murder. I didn't do anything. I, you know, I, I was basically a good person. They'll go on and on and on. And I can't speak for any of you, but when I get there, I know what I'm going to say. You should not let me in. You shouldn't even look at me. But I brought somebody with me. And he'll speak for me. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will, by your spirit, drive these words, this prayer of our great Lord and Savior Jesus into our heart. We have got to get this, at least in our little church, Father. We can't, I don't know what they're going to do out there in the world, but I, I beg you, please, among your sheep here, do this work of your grace in our hearts and lives today and in the days to come. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, O God, according to your grace that we find in Christ alone. Amen.